You're in the water loop. Waterloop is made possible in part by grants from Springpoint Partners and the Walton Family Foundation. You're in the Waterloop. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by Flume. It's the perfect device for tracking your home's water use in real time on your smartphone. It's so easy to use. You just attach a small device to your water meter using a band, the same way you put a watch on your wrist. Then you connect to Wi-Fi, you download the app, and you're up and running. It's as simple as that. You don't need a plumber. You don't need to cut into any of your pipes or water lines. Very easy to set up. Then you can set water budgets, how much you want to use each day or week. It'll keep track of that. It'll tell you what's going on in your house with water use minute by minute. It'll send alerts to you if there's excessive water use or if it suspects a leak. In fact, when I installed Flume at my house, it told me almost right away about a leak. I was losing a gallon of water every six minutes. I'm honestly not sure when I would have found that without Flume. You can use promo code WATERLOOP for 10% off at flumewater.com. You're in the Waterloop. Welcome to Waterloop. This is Travis. Excited for this episode to talk a bit about collaboration and comprehensive water management and how you approach these kind of issues. I'm joined by two guests today, Allison DeLuise, Senior Advisor at the Water Center at Penn. Allison, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you, Travis. Great to be here. And Carl Russick, he is Director of Applied Research at the Water Center at Penn. Carl, thanks for coming on as well. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to talk to you all today about this work that you've done in the greater Pittsburgh area, um, really looking at all the kind of the environmental groups there, all the stakeholders and agencies involved in, in water management, um, and trying to figure out how to accelerate transformational change. Um, I think really by trying to bring those groups more together, um, herding cats, right? <laughs> um, but we'll, we'll dig into that. Bef- before we 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 d- do that, can you talk a little bit about the the waterscape of Pittsburgh and the surrounding southwestern Pennsylvania area for for people that might not be familiar with it? What's this What's this area like from a geographic perspective, from a water perspective? Sure, I'll take that one. Um, you know, Pittsburgh is a really interesting place to work in water. One, there's a lot of it. Uh, but uh, two, um, you know, and, the, and the whole history of the region is defined by water. Pittsburgh is there because of the, its confluence of three rivers or two into one, uh, the Allegheny, the Monongahela, and the, um, and the Ohio. Um, but at the same time, for you know, as dominated as the region is by these riverine systems, you're 2,000 river miles from saltwater. Now, the start, the point in Pittsburgh is is almost it's a 1980 some miles from Pittsburgh to the estuary in you know beyond New Orleans. So, yeah, we were uh, talking we were to, talking about that before the podcast that people might not realize that th- that river there, Pittsburgh, right, ends up in the Gulf of Mexico, ends up in the Mississippi River, and then the Gulf of Mexico. So that's that's a, an incredible journey. Exactly. And you are, you know, well up into the mountains. It's, you know, the area's eroded, heavily eroded plateau, which means there's a lot of relief 
You've got a lot of water coming through very narrow gorges in many cases, uh, which leads to some interesting hydrologic effects. It powered industry uh, for hundreds of years. It fueled navigation, uh, but it also leads to a lot of water management challenges uh, like flooding, like, you know, where do you put infrastructure? There's no place flat in that region generally to put infrastructure. So you've got to work around and next to the water, which leads to uh, a lot of challenges. Yeah, I, I wanted to hear a little bit about that also. Like, what are the primary challenges for water management in in Pittsburgh and the and the southwestern PA area? You know, you mentioned the topography is a bit of the challenge, but what else? What else do they face? What are kind of the big, you know, water quality issues too? Well, I think you know our phase one report really gave us a, a chance to talk with a lot of stakeholders and, and review previous studies and work that had been done. And we really wanted to understand what were the challenges and opportunities from the perspectives of the stakeholders. And obviously, people are very quick to talk about challenges because there are many. Um, people in the region spoke to us. You mentioned water quality, but even sort of stepping back and looking at governance, they spoke to us a lot about the really fragmented governance, which is um, was cited very often as a as a real source of, of political inertia and, and a sort of a hindrance to that that meaningful regional action that's going to be required and um, that that particularly referred to the legacy of so many small municipalities and the fact that there's so many different water providers so wastewater drinking water across the region and and neither of those things reflect the watershed boundaries and so there's that kind of disconnect uh, and then people spoke to us about um, their, their shared experiences relating to increased regularity and, and severity of flooding, which is um, what Carl mentioned. But what that means to people in their lives is basement flooding, including with sewage backup, uh, landslides, impassable roads, mouldy and damp houses, like all of these things manifest uh, in, in different ways for different people. Uh, com- combined sewer overflows, um, you know, that's that's meaning that sewage is being released into the rivers, which obviously is not particularly friendly to our aquatic friends, but also not really very pleasant for those people that like to recreate in the waters, whether that be fishermen and women, uh, rowers and the like. Uh, other issues that came up, and I just sort of really quickly want to touch on them, is sure. that People said that water is getting increasingly expensive and unaffordable, and people are also at the same time concerned about the safety of that drinking water, particularly related to things like lead contaminations. So that's a real concern for certain stakeholders. Uh, the, the river health continues to be impacted by both the legacy pollutants, some of the things that Carl was just mentioning, you know, acid mine drainage, but also emerging contaminants, so PFAS and oil and gas-related effluents, very controversial in the region. And, and then finally, you know, we resoundingly heard that the negative impacts of many of these issues are really being disproportionately borne by particular communities and, and particularly communities of colour. So so I guess yeah, your question was around what's the primary challenges, but it was interesting. We didn't get any real clear consensus on if you had a huge investment of money that would deliver the greatest outcomes, where would you spend that? And there wasn't consensus around that, particularly if you're considering equitable outcomes. So it's a complicated landscape uh, and, and we're having a lot of fun there. <laughs> yeah, complicated. It sounds like they've got a host, the host of issues, the menu of issues that you see around the country. You know, uh, you mentioned emerging contaminants. That's a big mining area, fracking yeah. and, and regular uh, coal mining. And um, yeah. that's, that's incredible. Uh, so 
I, I really want to read a little bit about uh, the question that you all set out to kind of go after. I mentioned, you, you know, your project was about accelerating transformational change in the area's water management. Um, but then this is this is the question: How do we adapt water policy systems and practices such that we protect public health and the environment while encouraging innovation, growth, resilience, sustainability, equity, and justice? That is transformational change, right? That is taking on the whole pie there. Um, how do you start to approach transformational change? And how do you start to tackle a question that complex? Well, I think, you know, it, it's a big question and it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. So the way to start addressing that is to get people talking to each other, even people in the water world. You know, if you put up a sign and say, we're having a water meeting, you'll get certain people who will show up every time. Hmm. They have different ideas about what that means. Um, given the region's industrial history, its economic history, and its recent history as far as resource extraction over the last 10, 15 years, there's a lot of very entrenched thinking. And people see, you know, some of those issues of, you know, public health and the environment versus growth and innovation uh, as a zero-sum game. Mm. Or it doesn't have to be. Uh, and people have kind of lost sight that, generally speaking, everybody wants clean water. Uh, everybody wants uh, a vibrant economy. And everyone understands you know, there will be some trade-offs. But people hold more ideas in common and more thinking in common than they don't. Um, at the same time, uh, it's really important to get people in the room who aren't typically at those water meetings. You know, Allison mentioned there are certain communities that typically bear the brunt of these issues. Uh, and, um, you know, there are not, you know, one, they don't even know about, you know, opportunities to have these conversations uh, in many cases. And two, they may not have the bandwidth to, uh, to uh, feel they can participate. So finding ways to broaden the circle get these conversations started and make it clear that it's intentionally very, very inclusive. You know, we want people from the private sector. We want people from the resources industry. We want people from, you know, the Chamber of Commerce and the Rotary Club, along with, you know, fish and wildlife folks and the watershed folks and the utility folks. Mm -hmm. That's another, you know, key point. You've got, you've got these tremendous silos, not just geographically and levels of government, uh, but you've got a lot of, you know, missed connections between, you know, water, wastewater utilities and watershed groups and regulatory agencies. Everyone's kind of working in their own space. They don't realize just how connected these systems are and in how interreliant they are. So that it, it seems like for your work, for this project, it's been a lot of conversations, huh? A lot of outreach, a lot of talking to people, a lot of getting people together that might not always be together and just listening to what they have to say. How's that, how's that been, um, got to be interesting to be a fly on a wall at those those conversations. I would say um, COVID-19 probably hasn't uh, helped or enabled that. I mean, that's been, been a major challenge to this project is how do we, you know, such a, a, an intense sort of interpersonal relationship focused project and bringing people together, how do you do that all remotely and still build that social capital and, and that trust that's required? So it's been interesting, but it's it's allowed us to experiment a little bit in different ways of bringing people together. And, and we, we often use this sort of accordion metaphor where start with a small group of people, bring ideas to a medium size, then test that model on a broader group and kind of keep that accordion going in and out because 
at the end of the day, uh, it, it's it's a people problem, not necessarily a completely a technical problem. And and the more that we can get people sort of trusting and and reaching out to one another, the better this is going to go. And really, our role is to just facilitate those connections. So it's been challenging with COVID, but I think we've been sort of working ways to to overcome that. Um, a lot of Zoom time, I can tell you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, this is like social science here, right? Uh, Absolutely. Very, very, very interesting. So so I guess again, a conclusion here, which which I pulled out. I'm going to read this text again. You you know you concluded only through taking a systematic and integrated approach with establishment of cooperation and trust across boundaries. Those boundaries you all have mentioned: geographical, jurisdictional, political, social, cultural. Could the current water system challenges in Southwest Pennsylvania be addressed? Um, why did you come to that conclusion? I think you've touched on it a bit, but. Please elaborate. I think it's important to understand, you know, despite there, there's justifiable impatience on the part of a lot of people in the region who want to make progress, but these are generational issues. Yeah. And to make real long-term change, you know, it's going to take you know, long-term trust building. People need to be comfortable, you know, being in the room together. And so you've got to take a long-term view and get these relationships either established or reestablished in some cases, given given the recent history in the region. Um, and it's not just about water. You know, water is uh, a topic that is very good at connecting people, given given Allison's, you know, you know noting that the watersheds don't respect political boundaries. But, uh, you know, water is a connector. Um, in many cases. And so, you know, if you're looking to establish trust in relationships, uh, there's no better, better way to do it than around water because it's very emotive and it will bring people to the table. Mm. Uh, but then you've got to set a long-term vision. You've got to look, you know, 20, 30 plus years into the future and say, where do we want to be and how can we get there? Uh, and the people who are going to going to get us there, they may not agree on everything. They may not even like each other, but they need to trust each other. They need to know who, you know, where people stand, who needs to be on the, they need to have each other on speed dial in order to uh, help get things done. And you also need to push it out that far to be able to uh, avoid people thinking immediately about funding or, you know, who's in charge of what and kind of the, the hierarchies and power structure uh, of all the various organizations that overlap in this space. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned two two words there: trust and funding. Uh, you know, that, that, are, that are obviously key. Uh, trust is a tough thing to build, and and funding is tough to come by. Um, one of the things I love about about the work you all have done and are continuing to do is that it's very solutions oriented. Um, love to focus on solutions here, not all challenges and doom and gloom. Um, so, the Southwestern Pennsylvania Water Network. Uh, what is what is that, and why is it important? Okay, yeah. So, um, and this is a nascent network. It doesn't yet exist. It's okay. not in bricks and mortar, but but it's it's part of the process of what we're developing. And and obviously, a lot of the idea of moving towards a network approach sort of stemmed. Obviously, we spoke about the fragmentation uh, that exists in the region, and, and the idea of this network is really trying to bring together this diversity of players uh, and their interests and, and issues to much better coordinate, to leverage efforts, to reduce duplication, um, very much to help people understand one another's perspectives and find common ground. And, you know, we didn't feel that trying to create an Ohio Basin River Commission mm. 
right now is going to work. So we sort of said, let's start with sort of there's, there's a lot of assets in the region. There's a lot of great work happening, a lot of really committed people doing work. So let's not discount that and, and try and put something over the top of it, but let's leverage it. And I think you mentioned, you know, trust and funding. I, I think one of my favourite sayings at the moment is change happens at the pace of trust. So we sort of felt like this network, and I didn't coin that. I wish I could claim that as mine. I, I, I don't know who coined I, it. But, I, like, um, I like that a lot. I'll probably steal it as well. So, <laughs> and, and I've stolen it because it, it's, it's perfect. And so this network is really about building that trust as kind of a precondition for changing the way that water resources are managed in the region. And so you know, the network is, is experimental. It's, it's something that's going to sort of look at where is their energy uh, and, and evolve as it needs to. Um, but um, the, the early stages of the network are going to be very much around this sort of connection piece. You know, networks can move from sort of connecting to aligning work to co-producing work so that the different members and I think we're hearing from people that right now it's that connection piece that's really important so so far we've developed a draft vision I don't know if you want to hear it our draft vision um, for this network and and when I say we we're co-creating all of this with local stakeholders so all we're doing is we're facilitating this process but but all of this is co-created so the, the current draft vision as we have it is southwestern Pennsylvania water resources are sustainably equitably and collaboratively collaboratively managed to protect public health and the environment, enhance community and system resilience, and deliver economic, ecological, and social benefits for all people of the region. And it's somewhat generic. You could say, well, that could apply to anywhere, but some of the the particular challenges around public health, around economic, these are things that regional stakeholders said were really important. So we've developed some purpose and goals that we've been testing them with the broader community, getting feedback and refining. Uh, and, um, and, And that's kind of the, the basis of which, you know, we're hoping that civilised conversations are going to be able to take place around priorities, which then can be communicated via this, this collective voice to decision makers at, at county, at state and at federal levels. Um, and, and the one thing I just want to, I guess, reiterate is that it's a network, not an organisation. And mm. so they're quite different things and they work in very different ways. And, and as such, we're really in the process of supporting local leaders to determine how a decision is going to be made, what is membership going to look like, how is information going to be shared and, and those sorts of things. So our goal in, in supporting our, our local um, on-the-ground stakeholders is really to be experimental and have a loose enough structure that this, this network can evolve to where there's greatest local energy and momentum. So it's um, it's a big experiment and um, so far we're, we're sort of we're finding that there's traction and, and people are sort of saying this is resonating. Yeah. I, I always, when I look around the country or look at different places, you know, there's so many environmental groups there. There's so, like you said, the fractured, but there's so many different efforts underway in nonprofits, uh, state, local agencies working and whoever it might be. And it's like, gosh, uh, you know, if they just come together, you know, the, the power of, of collaboration there. I always, um, I always like the model they use in the Chesapeake Bay. There's the Choose Clean Water Coalition. Um, and I don't know how many groups are part of that now, um, but, you know, it really just helps to leverage all of their, you know, collective efforts. Pretty, pretty great. <laughs> I think so. And I think you you want to allow people to continue working where and on what they are passionate about. So you're not trying to tell them, stop working here and start working there. Or 
but but you want to leverage it. You want you want there to be really clear communications about who's doing what. How can we learn from one another? How can we build so that these sort of scarce dollars that we have, the funding issue, we don't have unlimited resources. So we've got to do everything smarter and more efficiently, but allow people to work on what's important to them. Given a lot of the people also are volunteers, if you think about who's working on water. True. True. Uh, one of the other, uh, I think, ideas that you all have come up with is the Southwestern Pennsylvania Watershed Leadership Incubator. Love to hear about that. And sorry, you're hearing a bit too much of my voice at the moment, but um, the, the Water Leadership Incubator is really, um, I guess it stems from this idea that, as Carl mentioned before, it's going to take a long time for major change to occur, particularly if we're building that sort of foundations of trust. And so we want to make sure that there's a group of future water leaders really well acquainted with the concepts of collaborative leadership that are going to help steward these these future collective actions. And that's what this, this leadership incubator program is about. So we, it's our inaugural program, we've developed it and we're, we're executing it at the moment. And so there's 14 young-ish, you know, water leaders covering conservation districts, private sector, government, NGOs, again, trying to represent the diversity of geography and sectors. And we're trying to equip them, or I, I guess I should say expose them to the skills and knowledge and attitudes that are going to be required to lead real change in the future. Um, so so that's kind of what it's about. It's, it's you know, exposing them to what, what's going to be required. But just as importantly, it's really about um, exposing them to the diverse perspectives that exist within the group, really hoping to enhance empathy and understanding of where different stakeholders come from, because everyone has valid reasoning. It's just mm. that it depends where you're coming from. And then I think the final uh, main objective of that program is about building the relationships between those people that will hopefully support um, fruitful and, again, civil conversations well into the future when their paths cross again. So it's a 15-session program. It's mainly virtual. We, had, we designed it originally to have sort of face-to-face -face at the beginning, centre and end, and virtual in between. We've had to shift that completely to virtual given what's going on. Um, and, and we're getting a lot of feedback from the group so that we can continue to sort of improve it for, for future renditions. But it's a lot of fun. It's a really wonderful group of incredibly smart, talented, inspired, courageous uh, people. And so uh, we're, we're interested to see how that goes. I, I love the idea of, of helping to groom the next generation of leaders. And, you know, they have all that potential and you just kind of got to give them some tools and, and give them some extra knowledge and send them on their way. Um, good. Spot on, spot on, Jack. You, you know, there's a bunch of other needs you all have identified as part of to be able to kind of get to that that bigger picture of, of transformational change. One is about uh, robust robust watershed wide data collection. You know, monitoring and being able to kind of share all of that data. Um, why why do you see that as so essential? Well, if you're looking to make long term change, one you need to know the, the current state of the waterways. Um, and you need to get a, a sense of the direction of water quality and quantity. Uh, there is data being collected. You've got you know state and federal agencies, you know, have, who have been collecting data for quite some time. You've got various permittees. You've got a lot of watershed groups doing citizen science, uh, some of quite good quality. Uh, but there's no one place to get it, and there's a lot of overlap, and people may not realize who's already collecting the data in what place and may not realize where there would be significant gaps. Um, and, you know, you want to be able to inform policy um, and regulatory activities comprehensively. You also want to be able to inform the public narrative. 
and you want to help people understand the connections between water quality and quantity and public health. Uh, in order to do that, you need a robust data set or you're kind of at the mercy of who's got you know, the most focused data dealing with a specific problem uh, where you know, context is very important and you know, the longitudinal picture is very important. This is where we are now, but you know, where were we 10 years ago and where do we think we're heading? Uh, particularly as the hydrologic regime evolves, uh, as it's, ex it's expected to over the next several decades, it'd be very good to have a very clear picture of, of where we stand and where we're going. Yeah, th this data issue pops up everywhere uh, that I that I see, um, including at you know kind of the national federal level. Um, just a, a need to have more, like you said, there's a lot of data out there. How do we better? aggregate, organize, access the data um, is, a, is a, a definite challenge. And how do you account for quality? You don't want to dismiss mm. citizen science out of hand. It's tremendously sure. useful as data, and it's tremendously useful as a way to engage people in their local waterways. But you've got to understand what it is and, and make sure you're assigning the proper weighting to you know, data quality. Mm -hmm. Um you know anybody that's been in in Pennsylvania and that part of Pennsylvania knows there's a lot of small towns, um, and we also know that uh, small towns don't have a lot of resources, uh, financial resources, and and so forth. And especially after the past year, uh, you know municipal budgets have taken a really devastating hit. Uh, and like we talked about funding, right? A lot of things with water take <laughs> takes money. Um, at, you know, so I know why. Financial assistance and technical assistance is important, but how, how, I think is the key thing. You know, how do you increase that, uh, that being provided to these small towns? I mean, I'd say up front that, you know, obviously our efforts are a drop in the bucket um, because it's, it's truly going to take you know, meaningful national policy changes to address the, you know, the, the hollowing out of these smaller communities and their infrastructure you know, right as you know the the, the systems uh, that they're holding together with you know duct tape in many cases quite literally yeah. um, need to be replaced you've you've and and you know southwest pennsylvania is a tremendous case in point because you've got you know what were vibrant industrial cities uh, that had, you know, water infrastructure that was, you know, there was a lot of steel around and these systems were very well built. Uh, but, you know, we're dealing with certain towns that were 20,000 people in a steel mill. Uh, and now they're, now they're 4,000 people, no major industrial users, vastly oversized water systems. And, and quite frankly, in some cases, you know, the, the water bills are what keeps the entire municipality afloat. Um, so just coming in and helping helping these folks understand where where more help is available is the first step you know just helping helping these local decision makers who are often elderly have very little time to dedicate they've been they've had their arm twisted to be sitting on these boards to begin with and helping them you know helping them figure out where they can find help because there are programs and there is funding available it's it's not nearly enough but you know just finding out where to start is often the hardest the hardest piece. Yeah, sure. Um, you know, we talked, we've talked about bringing people together, getting them to collaborate more. Um, there's egos involved and there's different missions involved. Um, when it comes to some of the key organizations that, you know, you would want to be part of 
the water network or to come to the table more. Um, you know, I, I, again, I know why they're important, but how, how do you bring them together? How, how do you kind of overcome some of those, those egos and those different missions to get them to, to collaborate? Yeah, well, you know, first of all, the current way of doing things isn't working. So yeah. the status quo is not an option. So it's like saying we need to try something else. So yeah. let's give something a go. And I think um, each of them somehow need to see their issues featured somehow in the work of the network. They have to sort of see that being a part of the network is actually going to be to their advantage. And, and I think they need to also see that there's more to be gained from finding commonalities and convergence of interest and complementarities. Sorry, that's the three Cs. I didn't mean to alliterate like that. But, <laughs> you know, with other stakeholders, it's better to do that than working alone. But the transaction costs of doing this have to not outweigh the benefit of participating. So, so you know, that, that's a tricky balance. And I think, you know, that's going to come down a lot to relationships. You, you said it yourself, you know, getting people, people are more likely to work with you if they like you. So getting people to meet with one another, talk, find common ground, even if it's about their kids' football on the weekend, well, you know, relationships. Relationships are so at the foundation. It sounds uh, a bit obvious, but, you know, so, so that's one, one major way of doing it. Um, it's going to require really strong systems of communication and knowledge management. So the platforms that we're needing to set up have to, have to be efficient. There has to be a way for people to access information, to share information, uh, to, to sort of take good practices and, and look at ways of replicating and I think it's also going to require really strong leadership, local leadership from all network participants. I mean, networks, again, different from organisations. The power structure is is quite different. And so we want to make sure that no one voice dominates. Um, there's lots of valid voices. Um, one of the key things I think that's going to help bring people to this network is um, one is referrals from other network members sort of saying, actually, we already see value in this. Um, and we already had an example yesterday. The DEP had a, um, a consultation, public consultation on the Ohio River in Pennsylvania, and um, no one really knew about it. And one of our network members found out about it and sent out a big quick email. And so a whole lot more people turned up than than had that. So, you know, really simple, yeah. minor example, sure. but already you're sort of saying, okay, you know, a communication channel. And I think so having some early wins is going to be really important. So if we as a network can have an early win in either we're able to get a nice chunk of funding to do something or if we're able to influence a policy or whatever that is or if we're able to capture all of the small wins that are happening around and, and aggregate them to sort of say we can already see that there's value, um, I think that's going to help. So there are some sceptics out there. There are some people that have to say, it seems too soft. It's all a bit too touchy-feely. Um, and, and that's okay. We're, we're not going to try and twist their arms, but we hope that success breeds success um, and that those that do feel there's some value will, will share that um, and, and that people will start to see that there's there's um, something to be gained by being a part of this and there's something to be lost if they're not a part of it. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, a key part of, of this type of work is the regulatory side. Um, you know, regional regulatory organizations, or you've got local, state, federal, definitely. Um, they've got their marching orders, you know, in large part, and they've got laws and, and regulations and so forth they've got to follow. Um, how do you get them involved? Because they are so critical, right? Uh, they're, they're big decision makers. They have the most funding. Um, how, how do you get them more involved in, in this type of collaboration? I, I think the first 
piece of that is understand helping folks in the region understanding that the regulators aren't just enforcement entities. Mm. That they're all equipped with both carrots and sticks, right? Mm. And you know, particularly in a place, you know, we we talked about the geography of Pittsburgh, and it's it's very physically divided, you know, geographically from the rest of Region Three, for example, uh, which is the EPA region in which you know yeah. Pennsylvania sits. Um, and so for the longest time, folks in the region have thought of the EPA primarily as a as an enforcement entity. Um, and folks at EPA, you know, if you talk to them about what's going on in Pittsburgh, they'd ask, you know, what's the plan? Hmm. So, you know, people, you know, people in the region need to see that there is opportunity in working with with regulators in Harrisburg and Philadelphia and DC uh, and the like. Um, and even uh, an organization like the Ohio River Sanitary Commission, um, and uh, folks, you know, in the regulatory agencies, they've got limited bandwidth. They want to do good work. They want to help folks out, but they also want to make sure they're welcomed and and there's somebody there with a plan and 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 this, the uh, the toolkit to be able to take advantage of what they have to offer. So. Again, it's it's trust building. It's you know opening doors and opportunities. It's bringing people to the table, and understanding where there is you know good work to be done. Hmm. Yeah, there's going to continue to be that enforcement piece, but at the same time, you know the assistance piece is important too. Sure. And, and just just Travis, just to quickly elaborate, um, yeah. it's it's not quite regulatory, but um, sometimes these groups are looking for entry points to engage. Um, the Ohio River Basin Alliance, which covers all of the Ohio River Basin, they recently developed a plan. Um, it's strongly supported by the Army Corps. They've got Orsanco part of that. And they were looking for how they could engage in southwest Pennsylvania but couldn't find a leverage point to do that. And, and through this nascent network, we were able to introduce them to the region and now there's two members of, of our community that are sitting on, on their sort of steering committee. Uh, likewise, DEP in Harrisburg, um, on the data piece, it indicated that they realise they're not engaging enough. They also have been given marching orders to be thinking a lot more about equity and inclusion. So they are looking for a way to get into the region and start talking with stakeholders about data. And again, they themselves said to us, look, we're, we've got limited bandwidth. We, we don't really know how to engage or where to engage. So this network is an entry point. So I think um, looking at the regulators less as adversaries and more that, you know, they've got good intentions, they've got a mandate, and how do we facilitate those conversations? We're finding it um, to some degree easier than we thought to get regulators uh, at the table. Oh, fantastic. That's great news. Um, last kind of uh you know, a question or two I wanted to ask you is, um, as you've been doing this work and doing this project, are there other places around the country that you looked to and saw, you know, similar efforts and were like, okay, what can we learn from this place and what can we borrow? Yeah, I think so. I mean, one of the, um, you know, every location likes to think they're unique. So you go to any one place and they say, oh, but we've got this set of challenges and, and no one else has them. So we, we can't learn from anything. Um, and of course, you want to respect the different social dynamics based on history and geography. But no situation is so unique that they can't learn from others. So so along, I guess, in that vein, we uh, started off and, and we did a, a relatively in-depth study. We interviewed uh, eight different water collaboratives um, around the, the country, trying to, I guess, discern lessons from those, from, from sort of looking at how did they get established, what's their coordination mechanisms, how did they get funded, how are they structured, 
all of those sorts of things to sort of then pick out different lessons that might be relevant for our our network and and lots of good practices and experiences came out you know the great lakes region they're doing some really great stuff and they've been very successful in getting big chunks of funding through collective action. Um, you mentioned before the Chesapeake. I mean, the, the Chesapeake has lots of really great examples. Uh, the Susquehanna also in, in sort of Pennsylvania and beyond, mm -hmm. but also very locally, the school collection network is still considered one of the kind of best practices in sort of um, action networks around water. And, and so being based in Philadelphia, we've been able to sort of tap into them a lot. So we've kind of put that into a report and that report's available to anyone. Uh, but we've been using that to very much inform how we're developing our processes and and um, and those things with this network. So that's been a um, really critical part of us, making sure that we don't learn the same lessons over and over again, or maybe we learn them differently, but that, that we're sort of starting from a good starting point. Sure. And I guess, you know, uh, one day what's happening in Pittsburgh can be a model for other places, right? That's that's the hope, hope. is that what's being pulled <laughs> together here. Yeah. yeah, there's so much potential in the region. You know, it's 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 they've got such a tremendous resource in their water hmm. and it, there's so many opportunities for for Pittsburgh to be a model. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. It's a gorgeous area and Pittsburgh itself has had a bit of a renaissance and uh, so it's yeah. a great, great time for this to be happening. Well, Allison and Carl, thank you so much for your time. Uh, it's really interesting what you're up to. I look forward to following it um, and, and seeing the success. So thank you both very much. Thank, thank you, you, Travis. It's been great being here. Waterloop, Waterloop, Waterloop. Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's episode. A special thanks to Waterloop supporters, Springpoint Partners, and the Walton Family Foundation. The Waterloop podcast is sponsored by High Sierra Showerheads, the smart, stylish way to save energy, water, and money while enjoying a powerful shower. Save 20% with promo code Waterloop at HighSierraShowerheads.com. Waterloop is also sponsored by Flume, the smart water monitor that tracks your home's water use in real time and provides data on your smartphone. Save 10% with promo code WATERLOOP at flumewater.com. If you like Waterloop, please subscribe to the YouTube channel or your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on social media and visit waterloop.org to sign up for updates. You're in the Waterloop. <laughs>